0: teaching today is the stairway to love. Everybody say, the stairway to love. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and add to virtue, knowledge, and add to knowledge, self-control, and add to self-control, perseverance, and add to perseverance, godliness, and add to godliness, brother, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, add love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know them and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent or this tabernacle, meaning in his physical body, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent or my tabernacle or my physical body, just as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Hallelujah. Well, it's an amazing scripture that we're looking at. Everybody say the stairway to love. The scripture does not simply list Uh, eight and there are actually eight things mentioned here but the scripture does not simply mention eight things and say these things would be good for you or you should grow in these things but what it says is it gives a uh, connection and it says if you have the one that's good but to that you better start adding this and once you have gotten a measure of that then you're going to be able to add some of this and once you have those three things you'll be able to move into the fourth. And once you have the four, you can move into the fifth. And once you have the fifth, you can move into the sixth. Once you have the sixth, you can move into the seventh. Once you have the seventh, you can move into the eighth. So it is a stairway or a progression that we find here. Now, we all know that as a child, we looked at our parents. You know, the little boy looks at his dad. The little girl looks at the mom and says, oh, see all the things they can do. And they have grown-up clothes and they can drive a car or a truck or whatever. They drive, and they have responsibilities, and they can cook, or this, or that, or pick up things, and and they're able to do so many things, and make decisions, and all, and the child looks at that, and says, oh, I want to be that right now, I want to be that right now, and so the little girl puts on her mom's high heels, and she goes clonking around the house, and is careful not to trip and break the heel off the high heels, and the little boy wants to put on dad's big shoes, and he's he's clomping around in these big shoes, And he's saying by that, I just can't wait to grow up. I just can't wait till when I have the abilities. I just can't wait till when I have the strength, to when I have the responsibilities and, and I can do all the things that mom and dad can do. And so there is within our hearts a desire to immediately move into all that God has for us. Now, it's not difficult for the little girl to grow up and learn to drive and cook and sew and whatever she needs to do. And it's not difficult for the little boy to grow up and have a car or a truck and, and learn to wear his big work boots that his dad had or whatever. These things are not difficult, but it's not only difficult, it's virtually impossible for that child to move into immediately. And what we would all like, and, and I as well as the rest, we would like to simply have an instant cure-all. We would like to believe, as some denominations do, that uh, once you were a sinner and now you made a profession of faith in Christ and... All your worries are over and everything's taken care of and everything is just fine. And the reality is you and I have been Christians long enough to know it's not that easy. Everybody say not that easy. Because you and I have found and discovered and learned that there is a process in growing up. There is a process in growing up into Christ, into the anointing. And so I want to talk to you for a moment about the stairway. To love, I wish that everyone could love. The Bible says that God is love. He that loveth not knoweth not God. And to whatever, uh, to whatever attainment you have in loving, that's how much you know about God, and that's how mature you are as a Christian. And we would like to believe that everyone is loving, and that all Christians are loving, and that all of us are loving. But in reality, we find that love is a very evasive. It's very Uh, it's wispy, it's ethereal, it's hard to get a hold on love because it's more than just a feeling. It's not just simply a feeling. I loved my father and he passed away. And I could go for six months without seeing my father. I could go for weeks and weeks and weeks and never hear his voice on the phone or get a letter from him. I didn't feel any less loved. I didn't feel any less appreciated And so true love is not a matter of did you talk to me this morning. True love is not a matter of did I write you a letter last week. True love has to do with a spiritual connection that you have and that you are sharing with another person that you believe that God has divinely brought you together. And true love has in it the very nature of God. And that's why we don't see a whole lot of true love, right? The boy says to his girlfriend he loves her madly, And then he says, how about a little sugar? And she says, no. And then he says, well, I don't love you anymore. So we discover that perhaps he did not love her to begin with, right? And so true love has nothing to do with whether you gave somebody a little sugar this morning or wrote a letter or whether you saw them uh, last week. True love has to do with that spiritual connection. And we have to grow into those things. So let's look very quickly at these eight things. The stairway to love. The first of those is faith. The Scripture says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. Quoting from Hebrews chapter 11, For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so faith is believing that God is there, that he is the supreme being, the creator of heaven and earth, that he sustains all things by the word of his power, and also that he's going to reward you for seeking him, and for seeking to know more about him, and seeking to be like him. So faith is actually believing in God and believing that He and you have a working relationship whereby He wants to reward you. So we all know about faith. We all have faith in Christ. We have all begun to walk in a measure of faith, and yet we realize the Holy Spirit can energize your faith and give it a supernatural degree to where you can believe for miracles, you can believe for prosperity, you can believe for your family, you can believe for all sorts of things. But there is a basic level of faith where we believe in God and we believe that He's rewarding us and that we have a working relationship. Everybody say, I have that. So, you also can mature, of course, in your faith and move that faith into the level of miracles and whatever else you need. But the Scripture says, add to your faith. It's not enough that you believe in God. It's true that God requires that of you to please Him, but uh, what what the parent expects of the child... To please them when they're two years old is different when they're ten years old. When they're two years old, you're happy that they haven't uh, messed in their diaper. You're happy that they didn't turn over their milk at the table. You're happy about some really small things. And when they're ten, you're not happy with those things. You have assumed all those things, and now you have a new level that you're working on. But the Scripture says add to your faith, all right? So I want to challenge you this morning to add to your faith. Begin to move into some other levels. The first thing the scripture says you've got to add to your faith, or the first area that you and I must work on, is the level of virtue. See, well, what is virtue? Virtue is the good things, the commendable things that are about people's character. Virtue is not a specific, but it's just a general statement of the positive character traits like trustworthiness and courage and honesty and decency and some of the virtuous qualities. And so it is not enough that you believe in God, it is not enough that you believe in Jesus Christ, but you've got to add to that some actual qualities of trust and courage and and strength and all the basic things as you grow. In other words, you begin to grow spiritually. So you add to your faith some virtue, or some virtues could be thought of in the plural. But it's not enough that you begin to have some trustworthiness and some faith and some courage and that you begin to grow, you've got to add to your virtue, right? You're developing a little bit of character, but you've got to add to that. There has to be more to your Christian life than just you believe in God, and yes, I'm an honest and decent person. Because a lot of people say they believe in God, and they are honest and decent people, but they still haven't got a whole lot that you'd want to participate in. You don't really want to know them, you're not interested in what they're doing, because you perceive them as not having accomplished anything or achieved anything or having any true vision. But you've got to add to your virtue. Having had your faith and having added to it some character and some virtue and some strength and courage and honesty and decency, you've got to add to that. The Scripture says, add to your virtue. Having been a faithful person, having been virtuous, you need to add some knowledge to that. God wants you to understand more about Him. He wants you to understand more about yourself. He wants you to understand more about Christianity. He wants you to understand more about uh, ethnic problems and political problems and spiritual dynamics and angels and demons. God is not interested in having a bunch of dummies to worship him because if you said, uh, I've got dozens of followers, they fall at my feet and think I'm the most wonderful person in the world, and you said, here's my followers, and they all came out and went, duh... And then everybody laughs because, yeah, you got followers. They don't have sense enough to pick the cornbread out of their teeth. What kind of followers is that? God does not want us to be ignorant, brethren. He wants us to have knowledge. And it is a plus. It is a positive. It is necessary to develop knowledge. It's good to sit in Sunday school as a child and learn something about the Bible. It's good to study human behavior and learn about psychology and the way people's minds work and the way their emotions work. It's good to understand things about spiritual dynamics and the Holy Spirit and miracles and how all these things work. Everybody say, I want to know. There's something that says inquiring minds want to know, and you as a Christian should be an inquiring mind. You should want to know. You should need to know. You should be anxious and eager and excited to know and to learn about spiritual things. Amen? I know about uh, 30 years ago, a wave swept across America. I think it's kind of gone or dissipated or dried up somewhere. But about 30 years ago, a wave swept across America called the Deeper Life Seminars. And there were deeper life seminars everywhere on how to pray and how to be deeper in God and how to be more spiritually minded and how to understand the spiritual dimension. Right? They were trying to add some knowledge. And knowledge here primarily refers to the knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the church, spiritual things. But it also is true we need to have knowledge about many things in the natural. If there's no plus, there's no positive side to being ignorant, right? And if a policeman stops you for disobeying some law and you say, well, I've never heard of such a law. He doesn't say, oh, okay, that's all right then. He goes ahead and arrests you or finds you or whatever he's wanting to do to you you know, whatever strikes his fancy, he goes ahead and puts that on you, because lack of knowledge is no excuse. And you and I, beloved, we have a Bible. We have history books. We have all around us examples of faith, examples of lack of faith, examples of faithfulness, examples of tardiness and lack of faithfulness. We have before us all kinds of examples. All we have to do is examine them, and our knowledge will begin to increase. But once we have some faith and some virtues and character and knowledge, the scripture says we got to keep adding. That's not enough. It's not enough that you know a bunch of things about God, that you even know a bunch of things about yourself. But the scripture says add to your knowledge self-control. Self-control. What does that mean? It means that you may get angry, but you don't get so angry you fly off the handle. It means you don't say, well, I've had all I can take and now I'm going to blow up. It means you don't decide that you're tired of a certain situation and you're going to hit somebody or you're going to hurt this or you're going to break that or you're going to make this call or do this destructive deed self-control is more than simply controlling sexual desires and controlling anger and things it's controlling every area of your life the holy spirit wants you to bring into submission every area of your life somebody say self-control and so self-control is a virtue it is a positive it is a plus Now, it's not to say that a person is uh, neutral or so peace-loving or so uh, lackadaisical that they just don't care, right? It's one thing to just don't care. Just don't care is not self-control. When you can lay down and go to sleep next to uh, a job doesn't mean you've conquered the, the problem of workaholic syndrome, right? And not talking about apathy. We're not talking about laying down next to the problems, or sitting down next to the devil and saying, well, I'm not going to fight the devil, you know, or whatever. It's self-control means that you have what you want under control. Your emotions are under control. Your mind is under control. You know where you're going. You know what you want. You know who you are in God. And you're not out of control, and you're not apt to do something bizarre. Because you see, if the devil understands you, and he does and he knows that you have a problem controlling yourself in a certain area, whether that's, you know, lust or greed or anger uh, or whatever, then all he has to do is push your buttons in that, in that area, and he has messed you up. He has sidetracked you. He has derailed you. It's like the boy who came to my house one time, and he wanted to be saved. He was the kid I went to high school with, and we've been witnessing to him for a long time, and he came over and said he was ready to get saved. And he's a handsome young boy. He's a doctor's son, had plenty of money and all, but he'd been having a wild life for years. And he said, McKinney, I'm ready to get saved. And I said, well, if there was a beautiful girl right down the street at a motel, and she called and said, would you come over here and have sex with me? Would you go there? He said, boy, would I, man? Give me the address. And I said, well, then you're not ready to get saved. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, getting saved is more than just saying, yeah, I believe that Jesus is Lord. It's a determination to exercise some self control, get a hold on your destiny, where is it you're going, what is it you want to do, and get some control over the situation, because if you save ten dollars a week for the next twenty years, you got a pot full of money. But if you save twenty dollars and then somebody says, you know, do this for me, or I need a pair of shoes or whatever, and you spend the twenty dollars and then you save twenty more and you spend the twenty and you save twenty more and you spend the twenty, because you're desires or emotions were out of control and in whatever way it works out suddenly you don't have any money at the end of 20 years and you can say i've been saving all my life and now i have nothing and somebody says well i don't understand how you saved all your life you saved twenty dollars about 750 times but you spent it every time because your emotions and your desires were out of control do you understand what i'm saying everybody say self-control but it's not enough to have self-control because you can be smart and know something about God and understand yourself to a degree and be able to self-control yourself. You know, you've got, you got a, somewhat of a handle on where you're going. But the Scripture says add to your self-control perseverance. What is perseverance? Perseverance means that when things get hard, you don't give up. When things get difficult, you don't throw in the towel. When things get... Uh, uh, the way gets hard... You may complain and grumble a little, as a normal human would, but you don't throw in the towel and say, I won't give up, right? I knew a fellow once who had uh, one arm, and he pastored a church that had about 150 people, and it was the building and all was about half the size of ours. And they had a nice educational wing and all. And he was there three or four years, and 150 went down to 50, and then 40, and then 30, and then 20. And then they couldn't pay the bills and they sold the chairs out of the classrooms and they sold everything, canceled everything in their budget except his salary. And I told him, I said, well, uh, pardon me for interfering, but you need to go to a different church, get a job, do something. I said, you know, you don't have anything left to sell and uh, you're bankrupting the people and you're driving them all away. I mean, the guy couldn't preach worth anything. It was a terrible situation. I would give you his name and address, but that doesn't matter. Uh, the point is, I told him, you've got to do something. Bail out of this situation. And he said, my dad taught me as a child. I've always got to stick in there. There's a time for retreating. There's a time for getting out of a situation. Right? If a grizzly bear is chewing on your arm, how far does he chew up the arm before you give him the arm and run? Right? There is such a thing as wisdom. But on the other hand, you and I need to learn that just because things are difficult doesn't mean, you know, a husband and wife have one fight, it doesn't mean it's time to throw in the towel. You get mad at your pastor one time, it doesn't mean it's time for you to find a new church. Uh, You're going to college and you hit a couple of hard courses, it doesn't mean you need to change your vocational attitude. You and I have got to learn to persevere when things get hard. And then you've got to learn to persevere when things get harder. And then you've got to learn to persevere when things get harder than that. And then when you think it couldn't get any worse, you've got to learn to persevere right through that. Jesus came to the point where they nailed him on a cross. His friends forsook him. He was sold out by a person on his own ministry team for 30 pieces of silver. There he hung on the cross, and he had the opportunity to give up and say, well, hell, it's all through. You know, He could have just gotten disgusted, but he didn't. He said, Father, you know, he's still talking to God. He's still doing his ministry. He's still working. Lord, forgive them. That's an act of a person who's in a superior role. You can't forgive anybody unless you're you're at least assuming for the time being a superior role. Father, forgive them. Yes, I am in charge of the situation. It looks like I'm going down in flames. It looks like I'm on a cross. But oh, in three days I'm going to arise. Oh, it's going to be reversed. And I declare to you, some of you are in difficult situations, but God's going to reverse those things for you. But you've got to stand in faith. You've got to persevere right through the difficult, right through the hard, right through the painful. Look at your neighbor and say, get tough. That's what we're talking about. You've got to get tough. Everybody say, get tough. Persevere. But having learned to persevere, having learned to walk in faith, having learned to have character and virtue having become schooled in your mind and in your spirit about the things of God, having self-control and being a master of your situation more or less, and having learned to persevere, you're still not there yet. The scripture says, add to your perseverance godliness. Godliness is acting like God. You notice that godliness is something that you have to add After you have knowledge, after you've learned to persevere, after you've gotten tough, after you've gotten some character, after you've grown up, after you've done all that thing, then you need to start worrying about acting like God. What would Jesus do? You know, they got a whole line of clothing and bracelets and jewelry and all sorts of things, WWJD. What would Jesus do? Well, until you've done these other things, you can't add godliness. You can't walk like Jesus walked if you're immature, if you're weaker, if you can't persevere, You've got to learn all those other things first, and then you can worry about godliness. Amen? And godliness is for those who have already conquered most of the areas in their life, conquered their past, wrestled their demons, uh, straightened their situation out, learned about God, got a handle on the Bible and everything else. Then after you're way down the road spiritually, way down the road spiritually, then you learn about godliness in the natural You say the little boy, the little girl's trying to grow up, and they want to be like mom or dad or Uncle Ted or whoever. But once they get developed to a certain point, godliness would be somewhere along the level of like going to graduate school. You know, you've already been through junior high. You've already been through high school. You've already been through college. You're going to graduate school now. You're getting right down to studying the very essence of reality and things. You're in graduate school now and you're studying godliness. There's nothing worse than trying to teach and enforce godliness on people who just got saved and are very immature and they don't know if they should throw their crack pipe away or hit someone on the head with it or turn in their Uncle Ted's you know, dope dealings. They don't know what's going on. They wouldn't have a clue. A person who's got, just gotten saved doesn't have a clue about how to be godly or how to be Christ-like. They do know that they have a new attitude about life and a new sense of being forgiven and a new liberty. They do know they've entered into a new life, but as far as really walking in godliness, it's totally impossible for a person who just got saved or recently got saved or got saved last year to be Christ-like because they don't even know what they're talking about. They don't have a clue. It's one thing to say the words, but it's another thing to actually understand what they mean. And I know that when I first began studying the Bible and reading theological material, I would see a certain concept, and I'd say, that's good, I've got it. And then I'd look at it a year later and say, now I know I've got it. And then two years later, I'd say, I think I've got it now. And five years later, I'd say, now I really do understand what that means. And that's after years of struggling and and worrying and trying to get a grasp and understand and see how something really, uh, you know, how it appears and how it functions and how it works in Christian life. But godliness is way up there. Everybody say graduate school. Graduate school for the Christian is when you actually do start thinking about what would Jesus do? What would the godly thing be to do? How does God view this thing in our society or this thing in my life? But notice having done all those things, and by then you think, boy, I am really moving along. Having done all those things, the Bible says you're going to have to add to that brotherly kindness. Now you say, what in the world... I thought the first thing in the world you do when you become a Christian, you start loving your Christian brother, right? The first thing you do. You just day one, I uh, had this grudge against all these people, but I got saved yesterday, and now I just love them all, and all my brothers out here, you know, and, and I didn't used to like blacks or Hispanics or Orientals or whatever, you know, and, but now you know, I love them all and, you know, da-da-da-da-da, Right? But the Bible says that having done all these other things, when you have really been moving along, you you going through graduate school, and you've got a handle on everything, and you've got it all together, then what you're going to have to start working on is brotherly kindness. Why is that? Because there is this basic foundational fundamental concept that I'm right and you're wrong. When you start discussing an issue with a friend, your basic supposition is I'm right and you're wrong. Now, you may say, no, I don't have all the information yet, but I'm pretty smart. And so what information I do have, I'm sure is correct. And I may, I may not be perfectly understanding the situation, but I got a pretty good handle on it. So we start with these assumptions. And once we really find out what godliness is about and understand how God operates and we try to do it, look at your neighbor and say, you've got to do it. See, once we learn about godliness and we start to actually try and put it into practice and do it, What do we discover? We discover that there are certain things about our Christian brother and sister that we don't like. You know, maybe it's a little thing, how they squeeze the toothpaste. Maybe we don't like that they get up so early or go to bed so late or get up so late or go to bed so late or whatever. We may not like their hairstyle or we may think, how could that young person have pierced their tongue? What does that mean? Does that mean they're wild, rebellious, and hippie? Or as I am at a... friend of mine the other day that i hadn't seen in years and he had his son with him and he had a mohawk haircut and i'm not talking the boy wasn't 15 right he was like 28 or 30 i mean a big man he was two inches taller than me, a big guy right shaved his head and had a little thin mohawk down the middle i mean it wasn't like four inches standing up it was only about an inch and a half long and a little curly mohawk and i'm looking at that thinking if that's not the most ignorant thing i've ever seen And then I think, well, now, wait a minute. That haircut, although it may show that he has poor taste in in hairstyles, who am I to judge whether he's spiritual or intelligent or religious or anything else about him? I need to have brotherly love towards him. Amen? I need to look at him whether he has a pierced tongue or purple hair or big hoop earrings in his ears or, you know, whatever he has done. Oh, look at my new fashion. You cut off your left foot and put on this plastic sock, you know? And you go, oh, great idea, fine fashion statement. You know, we look at things and think how twisted they are, but in reality, brotherly love says that this person is struggling at whatever level they're on and you need to accept them there and try to befriend them there. And if they say, I have a great new revelation, say, well, what is it? Vegetables will kill you. Don't ever eat vegetables. It's a great revelation. I just come into this. Instead of saying, well, you're about the stupidest person I've ever met, only a fool would try to convince you not to eat vegetables. Instead of saying that, go, Wow, what a revelation, man. Tell me, how'd you come to that conclusion? Share it with me. I'd like to hear more about it. Brotherly love is something that most of us don't even have a clue about. We're hard enough for us to try and even think about being godly, uh, but to actually move into the area where we actually love people with their inconsistencies, with their uh, irrationalities with their stupidity with the foolishness and all the crazy ideas and all the mixed up emotions and all the twistedness and all the foolishness to look at them and actually have a smile and when they come up with their revelation or their new idea of their shaved head or whatever they're going to come up with that you and I may think is absurd to be able to smile and love them regardless and accept them and not criticize them and if we do have any criticism, make it real subtle and real gentle, so that we're not offensive and abrasive, and just try and beat them up. Say, "Oh, I'm going to fix your hair, all right? You like a shaved head? You know, knock them down, kick them in the head a couple of times, get your pocket knife out, and whack the rest of their hair off." See, that's no way to approach it. That's not brotherly love. And I submit to you that most of us don't have a clue about brotherly kindness. See, it didn't even say love. I just said love, it." it didn't say love. It said brotherly kindness. Kindness is being kind to someone, regardless of what it is they have done. And you love the person, despite all the foolish problems they have had. And the easiest way to see it is to look at your own children, or the immediate members of your own family, right? When your son gets arrested for something foolish, and his name is in the newspaper, and you have to go down and bail him out, You say to your husband or wife or whoever, you say, well, that's the most ridiculous thing. How could my son be so stupid? How could I have raised anybody that stupid? Honey, how could you have raised anybody that stupid? And we get, we're incensed, right? But what about when somebody else's son does the same thing? You see, but we're incensed, but we head right down, bail them out, hug them, kiss them, love them, and take them on home and tell them, I hope you're not ever going to embarrass me that way again. And we're not even concerned about how they got so screwed up or why they did this foolish thing is how it made us look, right? But you see, we quickly forgive and love and we're kind to them and everything. You know, on the way home from picking them up at jail, we say, you want to stop for a snack? We could get some pancakes. I know you love those pancakes with the blueberries, honey. And we want to do anything, we want to be kind to them. But see, when someone else's son or daughter does the same thing, What do we do? We start by saying, oh, how absurd and ridiculous and all, but we don't immediately say, but I love them and go into being kind and generous, right? We continue along the same course of aren't they ignorant, isn't it stupid, how absurd and foolish, right? And we continue that all along. So I submit to you that brotherly kindness and actually dealing kindly with individuals, no matter how screwed up they are, is one of the most difficult things in the world to master. I only know a few people that I've ever met, that I sensed had mastered such a thing. And we were discussing uh, the one guy, he's a pastor, who's retired now, and um, his name was Robert Lee Schatz. Robert E. Lee Schatz. And uh, he was one of the kindest, most gentle people. And no matter if you walked in with your suit on backwards and your hair painted green, he'd say, Oh, my, isn't that an unusual fashion statement? How do we come up with that? He was just as kind... No matter how stupid you are, he's still kind. No matter how foolish you become, he's still kind. No matter how absurd your arguments are, he's still kind to you and nice to you and behaves just as gentlemanly and courteously to you, just like you were the President of the United States. And then later you look at it and say, man, he should have just told me point out, I'm a complete fool. But see, if he had, you wouldn't have been listening. You wouldn't have received anything. And what he wanted to do was sit you down and after a few minutes the conversation always went around to the Lord Jesus and how you're living and you want to serve God and uh, are you sold out you know to God and he always went back to Christian dedication and salvation no matter who he talked to no matter what the situation. Everybody say be kind. One of the hardest things in the world is to be kind and you notice He doesn't even suggest that you try to be kind to everybody until after you've talked about godliness and how God feels about things. Because once you know how God feels about the person, you may be angry with them, but God loves them. And once you see how God feels about the person, then you can begin to actually be kind to them. And then finally, number eight, after all those things, after you've done all these other things and you've learned to be kind, after you've done everything else, oh, hallelujah, The Bible says you've got to add to all that other stuff, love. Wouldn't it be nice if everyone in the world was loving? Wouldn't it be nice if everyone in the world entered into covenant-loving relations with everyone else and you could love and trust everyone you met? Wouldn't it be nice if every used car salesman you met would tell you the truth about the car? Wouldn't it be nice if every homeowner that you bought a home from would tell you the truth about how the chimney halfway collapsed and they've just got two boards inside propping it up until you buy it and the wind blows it over. Wouldn't it be nice if you could trust everyone that you meet? Wouldn't it be nice if you could not worry about your car breaking down in the middle of the night because you know that whoever picks you up will have a kind word and they'll help you, drive you anywhere you want to go, and everything else? Uh, it's like my lovely wife and I the other day were in Houston. And we were, we pulled in a drugstore to go in and pick up something, and a lady was running after the bus, and the bus was pulling away, and she's hollering, the bus drove on, right? And she was so upset and so frustrated, I missed my bus, and both of us had the same thought, just tell her, we weren't busy, you know, at least not real busy right at that moment, just tell her, jump in the car, and we'll drive you down, you know, to the next bus stop or whatever. So we did, and she did, and jumped in the car, and she was really thankful. But it was almost like you could feel the fear mounting up within her because we were zooming along after the bus. There was no one at the next bus stop, so it didn't stop. It kept on going, and it's blocks ahead of us. There was no one at the next bus stop, and it went on, right? And so then we caught a light, and the bus went into the distance, right? So she's sitting in the car with two strangers, And we were just chatting along, you know, and you could just feel the fear mount. She's thinking, well, I was really excited to get a ride, but now I'm in the car with two strangers that I don't know. And you could just feel the fear arising, and we were trying to, hi, you know, how are you, blah, 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 trying to be nice. But fear began to arise. She became convinced she wasn't going to get love. She wasn't going to get human kindness. She might get butchered or something. Who knows? You know, she's in the car with strange people, right? So... She said, let me off at this next convenience store. Well, I knew what she was thinking and feeling, and I didn't want to argue with her, so we just pulled in and let her out because she had received a blessing, but she came to the point where she wasn't sure uh, if there was going to be some love or some brotherly kindness or something evil happened to her. And so because of her own fears, she had to drop the blessing and get out. She said, just let me out here. And she, I saw her walk over to the phone. She got on the phone and called, so somebody... She knew could come and give her a ride or whatever she needed to do. But I submit to you that love is very difficult and people are not uh, not far off when they think they're not going to find love because you usually don't. What you usually get is misunderstanding. What you usually get is people using each other. What you usually get is all sorts of other things. But the Bible says, beloved, that God is love and he that loveth not knoweth not God. And so you can tell how you are in your spiritual walk you can tell how you're growing by how much you're able to love the bible doesn't even suggest that a new christian love people because love has nothing to do with how someone is treating you your son or daughter can disrespect you you still love them you still want to help them your son or daughter could do something mean to you you still love them you still want to help them love is not contingent upon how the other person is behaving the one guy said, I love my wife for, you know, 20 years, and then she got fat, and I didn't love her anymore, and I divorced her. Well, love is not contingent upon how much I weigh or you weigh or whether you got glasses or don't have glasses or whether you're doing your exercises or, you know, on a diet routine. Love has nothing to do with any of those things. Love is a spiritual commitment. It is a connection. It is a coming together with a relationship blessed by God and knowing that you're with each other in a covenant that is not based upon performance, and therefore you can't fail on the covenant. When you get saved, God says, I love you, and that's the end of the story. It's not, I love you until I find out you messed up. I love you until you quit your job, or until, you know, you steal something, or you do something. I love you until... It's not like that at all. It's not conditional. True love, the God kind of love, looks at people and enters into a relationship with them that is permanent, that is covenantal, that overlooks, it assumes there will be failures. Did you know that when God saved you and forgave you of your sins, He already knew of every fault and every problem, every sin you would commit, every lie you would tell, every shortcoming you'd ever have, He already knew every bit of that. And He smilingly, lovingly, cheerfully, warmly welcomed you into His arms anyway, knowing every bit of that. And so true love is when we welcome and understand people And we welcome and love them openly without any concern about their performance or how they're going to do. In fact, with the assumption that they're going to mess up sometimes, but we're going to love them anyway. Amen. When the mother has that newborn baby, she's not hoping, oh, I hope he'll never mess in his diaper because she already knows that he will. When you're teaching a child to walk, you don't say, oh, I'm going to start teaching her to walk, but I hope she never falls down and skins her knee. Well, forget it. She's going to fall down She's going to skin her knee. You and I are going to fail in life. We're going to flop at certain things. We're going to have things that we have to do over and over and over again. Consider this. Most millionaires in America never went to college. And over half of all the millionaires in America, those who actually made their million, not just someone who inherited a million dollars, those who actually made their million, over half of them went bankrupt at least once. Because they're visionary, and they worked hard. And they said, if I work hard and put all my energy into this project, I believe I can have this thriving car washer restaurant or whatever. And so they put all their energy into it. It flopped. They get up, dust themselves off, and they say, well, let's go with something else. So they're raising sweet potatoes or whatever they're trying to do, right? They're going to make that million, and they're going to go after it. Most millionaires didn't go to college. Most millionaires went bankrupt at least once, But they dusted themselves off and said, if that plan didn't work, my next plan will do better. I learned something from my last failure. I'm going into the future with a bright promise of tomorrow. And I declare to you that's the way God sees us. He assumes you're going to mess in your diaper occasionally. He assumes you're going to stumble and fall down. He assumes you're going to have problems. He assumes all those things, but he still loves you. He still cares for you. He still forgives you. He saved you knowing every sin you'd ever commit. In fact, the reality is he forgave you. When he forgave you once, God doesn't stand in time, my friend. When God forgave you once, it was retroactive, it was proactive, it went all the way to your birth, it went all the way to your death, covered anything and everything you ever will do or even conceive of doing. You, my friend, if you're a friend of Jesus Christ, if you're a child of the King, if you're a son of the Most High God, you are forgiven, everything you ever will, won't do, think of doing, it's all already taken care of. That's how much God loves you. That's why in the marriage vow, we say in sickness and in health, you're assuming a person will at some point get sick, and they will. You're assuming for better and worse. You're assuming there will be some times that won't be that pleasant. You're assuming there will be some failures, and that's why You're already from the beginning of the wedding vow pledging all these things about the ups and downs and the good and the bad and the more money and the less money and, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, right? Hallelujah. How many of you know that what you need, what I need, what the world needs, what we all need is love? And wouldn't it be wonderful if we from this day forward could love one another as never before? One guy said, there's only two perfect people in the world, you and me, and I'm not sure about you. And that's the way most people's attitude is. It's like the guy who founded the first Baptist church on American soil. He then withdrew from the church later, he and his wife did, and became seekers. And then he got rid of her because she wasn't spiritual enough. And that left out of all the people in the whole world, guess who the only one was that was truly spiritual and intelligent with God's program? just him right and the problem with that is that you may be smart and you may be even smarter than the person next to you but there's a whole world full of people and a lot of them are smarter than you are in whatever area you want to name and so the reality is we're all human we're all made of dust just a little ball of clay with jesus on the inside as one man said and as bishop pace says you're either in a mess or you just got out of a mess or you're fixing to get into a mess And he said, life is just a whole lot of mess. And so you've got to accept it. But love is saying that we're going to enter into this covenant. And that's the way God is with you. And that's the way he's been with me. And that's the way we must be with one another. Let's enter into this covenant. And let's do this thing together. Amen. And you know about that covenant, love. It has to do with the way you view your children, your family. But that has to be spread out. We've got to be able to include others. We've got to be able to forgive other people who trespass against us. The Lord's Prayer, we pray it, we say, Father, forgive me as I forgive others. The Lord loves you whether you love anybody else or not, but I think it's, it's not easier for him to love, but it's more comfortable, it's more pleasing for him to love you if he sees that love within you. Amen. Let's all stand together for prayer today.